So we have three readings this morning. Uh, the first reading um, is from Hebrews, and that's uh, chapter 9, verses 11 to 14, and you'll find that in the Church Bible on page 1207. So that's Paul writing to the Hebrews, chapter 9, 11 to 14. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that isn't made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He didn't enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place, once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? And then the second reading is just a few verses on. Um, it's reading from 23 to the end of the chapter. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ didn't enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Then our third reading is taken from Isaiah, Chapter 53, verses 10 to 12, and in the Church Bibles, that's 740. So page 740 in the Church Bibles. And starting, so in chapter 53, starting to read from verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, 
and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Thank you, David. Good morning. Uh, my name is Ian. I'm one of the ministers here. It's a great privilege to be able to uh, welcome you, especially if you're a visitor amongst us. Uh, it's really great to have you with us today. Thanks, Janet. Don't want to listen to me with the microphone up my nose. It's not a good thing. Right. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? Uh, That's a question that arises, isn't it, when we need motivation to do something. Have you ever asked yourself that question? What's in it for me? Uh, Maybe you've had that situation where uh, you've been working in a particular job. Uh, You like your job. You have no interest in doing anything else. And yet maybe one day you get a phone call and it's someone who wants to offer you another job somewhere else. And you ask the question, well... What's in it for me? Or or maybe you're a young person here today and uh, your parents or uh, some teacher at school uh, wants to give you some additional responsibility. And you might not ask it out loud, but at least in your brain, you think to yourself, yeah, right, but what's in it for me? Or maybe uh, you've had that knock on the door and you go to answer it and uh, it's a potential parliamentary candidate or a a local councillor canvassing for your vote, and they want to know whether they can count on your vote. And you might at least think to yourself, yeah, but what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Well, as we come to Easter, we might be tempted to ask the question, not what's in it for me, but what's in it for Jesus? What's in it for Jesus? All the suffering, the shame, the agony of the cross, what's in it for him? What motivates him to go through all of that for us? Uh, I don't think there's one simple answer to that question, but I think the passage that we have before us today from Isaiah gives us an intriguing and a wonderfully encouraging answer to that question. What's in it for Jesus? Uh, We come today to the third and final sermon in a little mini-series looking at the fourth and final servant song of the book of Isaiah. Uh, And as we saw a couple of weeks ago in this uh, poem, this song, Isaiah presents us with something of a mystery. There is this man, this servant, who is suffering terribly. And yet he is also mysteriously highly exalted. And we've been asking the question, haven't we, who is this mysterious man, this suffering servant? Well, spoiler alert, uh, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, it's Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is the one who was despised and rejected for us. Jesus is the one who has uh, taken our pain upon himself, who's taken up our pain. We saw that last week with Gareth. And this week we will see that it is Jesus who enigmatically will see his offspring. It's a strange phrase, isn't it? We'll think about that more 
a little bit later on. As we work our way through this uh, sermon, we're going to be, our way through this passage, we're going to be uh, structuring the sermon around three many's. Okay, there are three many's that come up uh, in this passage. That's what we're going to be thinking about. Uh, So before we get into it, I'll pray, shall I? And then we'll, we'll get into that. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this prophecy written all those years ago, which speaks of a suffering servant, one who would be despised and rejected, one who would bear the pain and the sin of his people, yet one who would see his offspring. Lord, as we come today to look at this passage, please would you help us by your spirit to behold the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I said we're going to be thinking about three many's. And the first many is this. He bore the sin of many. He bore the sin of many. Now, Gareth spoke uh, quite a bit about this last week uh, because this is a thread that runs all the way through the poem. And it's a thread that runs all the way through the passage that we have before us today. Uh, If you've closed your Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up again. Have a look at Isaiah 53. Uh, We see this most clearly in verse 12. Um, It says from the the third bit of the verse there, uh, he poured out his life unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many. He bore the sin of many. But that's not the first time the idea comes up, even in this stanza. If we go back to verse 10, how does it begin? It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. Do you see that? His life is an offering for sin. He's bearing the sin of many. Even verse 11 has it as well. After he has suffered That's the suffering for sin, to bear sin. Uh, And the verse finishes, he will bear their iniquities. Iniquities being another word for transgressions, for sins, for rebellion against God. So it's a thread that runs all the way through this stanza. He will bear the sin of many. And what a a burden it is to bear. Uh, When I was in my late teens, I uh, used to go hill walking quite a lot. I had a bunch of friends. Every opportunity we got, we'd go away for the weekend or a week or as long as we could get. And, uh, and one particular um, time really stuck in my mind. It was at Easter time. Uh, and we all got on a train and we went up to uh, some station that was literally in the middle of nowhere in Scotland. Um, I, don't, I don't know what it was called. I can't remember. It was a long time ago. But we got off the train and then we walked solidly for seven to ten days or something until we got to Fort William and got the train back. Now, in order to do this, I had quite a lot of kit at the time, but in order to do this trip, I had to borrow a rucksack from my friend. Uh, Because on this particular occasion, we weren't going to stop at any campsites. We weren't going to stop off at any um, supermarkets or anything, or corner shops or anything to get any supplies. We were carrying everything we needed for the whole time on our backs. Seven to ten days all the clothes we needed, all the food we were going to eat, our tents, our sleeping bags, everything. And so I needed a 100-litre rucksack. I don't know if you know what that looks like. This this here's a duffel bag uh, that is allegedly uh, 95 litres. It's only got a couple of sleeping bags in it. But it was bigger than this. uh, And we put everything in it, and we put it on. And I tell you, for the first couple of days at least, it was a serious burden to bear. It was a heavy load right? That is nothing 
nothing compared to the burden that Jesus had to bear. I know it wasn't a literal physical burden, but imagine, imagine bearing the sin of all of his people throughout all of history. The weight of that from Adam to the end of the age, whenever that is, all bundled up, all laid upon the shoulders of Jesus as he hangs upon the cross and suffers and dies in our place. What a thing. What a thing to bear. What a load. Now, some have objected to this idea that Jesus bears our sin, that he takes our sin upon him and is punished for us. Uh, They read verses like verse 10. I I don't know what you thought. Uh, It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. That doesn't sound great, does it? Some have even gone so far as to refer to this as cosmic child abuse, this idea that Jesus bears our sin. But friends, we need to be careful, don't we? We need to be careful not to drive a wedge between the will of the Lord in verse 10, who is the Lord, he is Yahweh, he is the triune God, and the divine will of Jesus, the eternal second person of the Trinity. There is no separation between the will of Jesus and the will of God. They are one and the same. Uh, Not only that, in verse 12, we see that it is the servant who is active in all of this. He poured out his life unto death. Uh, He allowed himself to be numbered with the transgressors. That doesn't come through clearly in the English, but in the Hebrew, it's very clear. The idea is he allowed himself to be numbered with the transgressors. Uh, and we see this, don't we, in verses from the New Testament we'll have up on the screen, I think, in just a second, uh, a verse from John's Gospel. Uh, in John uh, chapter 10, here we have it, verses 17 to 18. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples about his death. The reason my father loves me is I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. You see, this isn't something that's being imposed on Jesus against his will. This is something he does of his own accord. He lays down his life for his people. He bears the sins of many of his own accord. And I don't know about you, but that makes me astonishingly grateful. Shouldn't we feel gratitude for that to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the one who was willing to bear our sins and all the weight of that for us? What a thing. What gratitude we should have in our hearts. And if you're here today and you're not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, can I say to you this morning, the glorious news of the gospel is that Jesus is willing to bear your sin too. He is willing to take the punishment that you deserve. If only you will turn from your sin and come to him in faith. But I also need to say to you, in warning, if you're not willing for him to bear your sin, then you will have to bear it yourself. And that will be a terrible thing. As I was reflecting on that uh, time walking in Scotland with that heavy bag, I was wondering what would have happened if someone had come up to me on day one or day two or day three uh, and they'd walked alongside maybe some, I don't know, big army guy or something who was off duty and he didn't have a rucksack or whatever and he said, oh, 
you look like you're struggling with that back there a bit, mate. Do you want me to take it for you? Do you, do you know what I think I'd have said? No way. No way. You're not taking this thing for me. Why? Because of my pride. I wouldn't want to look weak in front of my friends, would I? You're not carrying it for me. I'm taking this load myself. Well, friends, that is one thing when it comes to a heavy rucksack. It is another thing entirely when we're thinking about the weight of our sin and the judgment that it deserves. Can I say to you, if your pride is keeping you from coming to Jesus, don't let it. Because on that last day, your pride will turn to shame when you realize that it is a load you are not able to bear on your own. He bore the sin of many. Secondly, uh, and following on logically from that first point that he bore the sin of many, he will justify the many. He will justify the many. Look down at verse 11. Uh, After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Uh, now, what is going on in this verse? It's, it's not the most straightforward verse to understand, is it? You might notice, if your Bible is anything like mine, it's full of footnotes, which is always a little bit of an indication that it's, it's not the most straightforward thing to translate. It's not the most straightforward thing to understand. But here's the big idea, okay? Because Jesus bore our sin, because the servant bears sin he, uh, of many, he also will justify many. Okay, by bearing the sin of many, he will justify many. Uh, which begs the question, doesn't it? What does that word mean, to justify? What is that about? Uh, well, to be justified is to undergo a status change. Okay? It's to undergo a change of status. Um, on the 8th of August in 2008, uh, I underwent a status change. Okay? Uh, I began the day as a single man. And by the end of the day, I was a married man. Okay? My marital status had changed during the course of that day. Well, what is the status change that is undergone when we think about justification? Well, what is our status to begin with? Uh, verse 12 is very clear with us. We are transgressors. We are those who have transgressed the law of God. We've broken God's law. We've sinned against him. We've rebelled against him. We are transgressors. That is our status before him. And because of that, we are deserving of his wrath. But amazingly, we can undergo a status change where our status becomes that of righteous. Righteous. The opposite of transgressor, a clean slate, a good record of perfection before God. What a thing that is. How on earth can it be that we go from transgressor to righteous? How can we be justified? Well, it is because Jesus bore our sins. He allowed himself to be numbered with the transgressors. He allowed himself to be considered as one of us, like us, so that he could intercede for us. The end of verse 12. Intervene on our behalf. In other words, he took our status, transgressor, so that we could take his status, righteous. What a thing. 
What a thing. Uh, this is the burden of those passages that, um, that David read to us from Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. Uh, if you want to, I'm, I'm going to read a, a couple of those verses again. If you want to, you might want to flick forward to Hebrews 9, but don't worry if not. Uh, let me just read a couple of those verses to you again. Hebrews chapter 9, I'm going to read from at the middle of verse 26. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do what? To do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to do what? To take away the sins of many. To bear the sin of many. And what's the result of that? Well, if you flick over the page, we get a wonderful summary in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. Hebrews 10, verse 14. For by one sacrifice, what has Jesus done? He has made perfect forever. Made perfect forever. Righteous, justified. Those who are being made holy. What a thing. What a thing. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, if you are putting your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, let me ask you, is that how you see yourself? As righteous? Do you see yourself as a transgressor? Or do you see yourself as a righteous person? It's an important question, isn't it? Let me, let me put it another way. How does the New Testament speak of you as a follower of Jesus? As a transgressor or as a righteous person? Well, let's have a look, shall we? We had a few uh, verses. Uh, how about uh, the way Paul addresses the Romans in his letter to them? Romans 1 verse 7. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be what? His holy people. That's who they are. Or uh, 1 Corinthians, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. That's another word that means made righteous. Sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. And if you know anything about the Corinthian church, man, that is a statement. <laughs> but that's who they are. God's holy people, sanctified. To God's holy people in Ephesus or Philippi or Colossae, depending on which letter opening you want to go to. But there's more. Uh, let's have the next slide. Later on in Colossians, he says, uh, you are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. The writer to the Hebrews says, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus is not ashamed of you. You are his brother. You are his sister because he has made you righteous. But there's more. 1 Peter, we are God's special possession. What a thing. And Jude, Jesus' brother, writes to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. <laughs> what a witness, hey? What a set of things to be described as. Why? Because of our status change. Because we are justified. Do we still sin? 
Yes, of course we do. That's the genius of uh, Hebrews 10 verse 14. Did you notice that? For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever. Who? Those who are being made holy. (laughs) That is our status. And that is where we're headed as we are being made holy. If you, uh, we, there's an analogy here, isn't there, in marriage? Uh, if I think or speak or act in ways that are inappropriate for a married man, is that good? No, absolutely not. But does it change my status? No, it doesn't change the fact that I'm married. And because I want to be the best husband I can, I strive to behave like one to behave in ways that are fitting for someone who has the status of marriage. Brothers and sisters, clarity on our identity will help us to live like the people that we really are, won't it? I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way before, but I I have done, and I find this hugely helpful in the fight against sin and the fight against temptation, to remind myself of who I actually am. I am not a transgressor. I am righteous, and so are you, if your trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you're tempted to lie, you can say to yourself, that is not who I am. When you are tempted to steal, you can say, that is not who I am. When you are tempted to lust, you can say, that is not the person that I am. When you are tempted to be angry and hateful towards other people, that is not who you are. And when you are tempted to covet numerous things in this world. You can say to yourself, that is not who I am. Jesus has justified me. I am not a transgressor. I am righteous. Jesus has declared us righteous, brothers and sisters. So let us live like it. Uh, He bore the sin of many. He has justified many. Thirdly and finally, he will receive many. And again, this follows on logically from the previous uh, points. Now, you might be wondering, the eagle-eyed among you, where on earth is he getting that from in this passage? Have a look with me again uh, at verse 12. If you turn back to, uh, not Hebrews, um, to Isaiah 53. Uh, Let's just look at the first couple of uh, phrases in verse 12. Uh, Here we have a description of the reward that comes to the servant because he has borne the sin of many and justified many. Okay? What's the reward that comes to him? Verse 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Uh, I don't know if any of you have watched, uh, there was a recent BBC uh, TV drama called the gold or gold or something like that. It was about the Brinks mat robberies in the 80s. Uh, it was a really good series. Um, it has what you might call uh, authentically colourful language in it. Okay, so bear that in mind if you're uh, making choices about whether to watch it or not and who you might watch it with. Um, but one of the things that was really interesting in this series is after they've done this robbery and they've accidentally stolen, like, I don't know what it is, I can't remember... 36 millions worth of gold or something. And this is in the 80s, so that's a lot of money. Um, After they've stolen this gold accidentally, um, they then have to work out where it's going to go. Okay? They have to divide the spoils. It's not, it's not simple if you've got a load of gold bullion. All right? you've, got, you've got to share it between the six guys who've actually committed the armed robbery in the first place. Uh, you've got 
the guy who melts it all down and mixes it in with like dodgy jewelry so that it can be passed on to gold merchants, he's got to take his cut. Uh, you've got uh, the guy who launders all the money through his Swiss bank accounts, he's got to take a cut as well. Uh, then you've got uh, the people who are going to go to the banks and take out these ridiculously huge sums of money in order to get the money into second. All these people, they've got to take their share. They've got to take their share of the spoils. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that Jesus has done anything wrong. Okay, that's, that's where the analogy breaks down. But if, if we take the reading of the translation that we've got here at the beginning of verse 12, that's kind of the idea, isn't it? Jesus will be rewarded. He'll take his share amongst the many and he'll divide the spoils with the strong. And I want to kind of go, mm, okay, yeah, he's rewarded, sure, but doesn't that seem like a bit of an anticlimax in light of what he's done? to share with the many and to divide the spoils with the strong. That, that, that seems a little bit weak, especially in light of what we saw at the beginning of the song. Uh, if we go back to chapter 52, verse 13, he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Uh, verse 15, uh, the kings of the earth will shut their mouths because of him, because they're humbled before him. So how do we square that? With these verses, well, uh, let me suggest to you, um, you. You might notice also there's quite a few uh, footnotes, which again suggest that this is not an easy verse to translate. Uh, I want to suggest an alternative translation to you. This is not the Ian Standard version. Okay, I haven't come up with this myself. Um, it's going to come up on the screen here. Here we go. Okay, so here's here's a, a legitimate alternative translation of those verses. Therefore, I will apportion to him the many. And the strong, he will apportion as spoil. Do you see the difference there? It's not that the spoils will be shared with him amongst the many. No, he will receive the many. <laughs> they will be given to him. And the strong, the great people of the earth, well, he gets to decide what happens with them. He gets to apportion them as he decides. Now, I think that if that's a legitimate translation, and, and according to Alec Matir and Herman Ridderboss, who are much better at Hebrew than I am, that is a legitimate translation. And I think in the context, that makes so much more sense of this verse, doesn't it? It makes sense of the fact that, he, that the servant is, that Jesus is then highly exalted above everybody else. But not only that, it makes sense of that strange enigmatic phrase in verse 10, he will see his offspring. I mean, what is that about? Jesus never left the status of single. How can he see his offspring? Well, that's the idea here, that the many that he has justified, he will receive as his people, as his children, as his brothers and sisters, as his family. They will be his reward. They will be his reward. I think that fits better. I think it's legitimate. Not only that, we see a similar thing said very clearly in the New Testament. I think we've got another slide. Here we go. John 10 again. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is, this is what we are. 
Those of us who've had our sin borne by him, those of us who have been justified by him, he receives us. We are given to him as his reward. What a thing. What is in it for Jesus at Easter? Well, many things. But amongst them, we are. We are his reward. We are a significant part of his motivation for going to the cross. Brothers and sisters, Christ Church Harpenden is his reward. And can I encourage you as we draw to a close now, to let that shape the way that you think about yourself and to let that shape the way that you think about your brothers and sisters who are sat around you today. He has borne your sin and theirs. He has justified you and them. He has received you as his reward for his suffering and them. Let that shape the way you think about yourself. Let that shape the way you think about others at Christchurch and further afield. And let that shape the way that you live your life now because you are not a transgressor. You are a righteous child of God. You are the precious reward of Jesus Christ. So live like it. Let's pray, shall we? Gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you and praise you for Jesus. The servant who suffered once to bear the sin of many. The servant who even now is justifying many the world over as they turn to him in repentance and faith. The servant who even now is receiving many as his precious reward. Lord, if there are any here today, who have not yet come to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, I pray for them. I pray that pride would not keep them from turning to you so that you might bear their heavy load and pay the price that their sins deserve. Father, I pray for those of us who have already turned in repentance and faith, please would you help us to grasp the astonishing nature of who we really are now. Please, Lord, make us thankful that Jesus has borne our sin. Please, Lord, would you help us to value ourselves and value one another rightly as your precious people, as those who are righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ. And please, would you help us to live as people who belong to you and whose status is that of righteous. We ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.